welcome to Blooming Out, Indiana's only LGBTQ plus news and public affairs show featuring music, events, and interviews, both local and global. From the WFHB studios in Bloomington, Indiana, this is Blooming Out. Good evening and welcome to Blooming Out on WFHB. I'm Ryan Shaddy. And I am Colin Schasperger. On tonight's show, we have our featured music, the weekly LGBTQ plus news headlines, and your area event calendar. But first, we are joined again by Mars School of Law Associate Professor Steve Sanders. Steve earned his bachelor's degree from IU and his law degree from the University of Michigan. He teaches constitutional law, family law, and constitutional litigation, and his scholarship focuses on questions arising out of the 14th Amendment's guarantee of equal protection and due process, with a special focus on issues affecting LGBT persons and same-sex couples. His teaching has been recognized with an IU Trustees Teaching Award and by a vote of the law school's students as Outstanding Interactive Professor. Before coming to IU, Steve practiced for four years with the Supreme Court and Appellate Litigation Group at Mayor Brown LLP in Chicago, where he became the firm's most junior attorney to be present at a U.S. Supreme Court argument in a paid client matter. Steve writes regularly for the Huffington Post, the American Constitution Society blog, and SCOTUS blog. He has appeared on MSNBC and Public Radio's To The Point, provides commentary and analysis for the radio show Bloomberg Law, and frequently is quoted by print and online news media and on matters of constitutional law and the Supreme Court. Steve, there is a lot to talk about here today, but first, welcome to Blooming Thank Out. Thank you. Great to be back. Steve, we, we uh, left talking with you, I think, back in February about um, just about issues that, that were regarding about what, what was occurring in the government, mm-hmm. federal government specifically, mm-hmm. uh, now that President Trump has been in, had been in office for about mm-hmm. a month. We had already seen some things uh, start then. And now we're, we're uh, how many months into this? About nine, mm-hmm. nine months into this. And more stuff Nine is, long, hard yeah, months. Nine months too many. feels more like four years already. It but. does feel like four years. I was thinking that uh, earlier today, in fact. Um, so what has happened uh, since the last time we've talked? Well, there there certainly are things, some things to talk about related to the Trump administration. Uh, positions it has taken, uh, the transgender military ban is something a lot of people have probably heard about. But, um, but since we talked, it might be interesting to start with um, one sort of significant Supreme Court decision, but one that hasn't gotten a lot of attention. This is a decision that came down in June near the very end of the Supreme Court's term. It's called Pavan versus Smith. And it's interesting and relevant because it's the first decision since the 2015 decision, um, Obergefell v. Hodges, that was the big landmark marriage equality decision. Um, But that decision left some questions unanswered. And this new case, Pavan, helps to answer some of those questions. Um, Pavan comes out of of, uh, Arkansas, was a decision by the Arkansas Supreme Court. Scenario is basically this. Um, If you are an opposite-sex couple, male-female couple in Arkansas, and you're married. And if you use artificial 
assisted reproduction. Let's say there's an issue, the couple can't have a child, and they use an anonymous sperm from an anonymous sperm donor. Uh, The woman is inseminated, she has the child. Arkansas state law says her husband's name is put on the child's birth certificate as the legal father. Even though everybody knows he has no biological connection to the child, he's still the legal father. Well, that scenario applies to lots of lesbian couples. So um, Pavan involved two lesbian couples, both of whom had u- were legally married and used artificial insemination, sperm donor sperm. And lo and behold, the state of Arkansas refuses to put on the birth certificate the name of the spouse who doesn't have the biological relationship to the child. In other words, a same-sex married couple is being treated less advantageously than an opposite-sex married couple. They're being denied a legal presumption to have both of their names on the birth certificate. And the U.S. Supreme Court basically said Arkansas can't do that. Um, The issue really was sort of became was the Obergefell decision two and a half years ago, almost a little more than two years ago now, was it just about a right to get married, just about a right to get a marriage license, or was it about the larger issue of whether gays and lesbians are fit to participate in marriage in the way that society understands marriage, which includes not just getting married, but all the benefits of marriage, the presumptions, other things uh, that, that happen that are important to preserving and protecting a marriage once it happens, like when you have a child, having both your names on the child's birth certificate. That's important as a matter of security for the child. And and if the parent's name isn't on the birth certificate, they may not be able to make important legal or medical decisions for the child, especially in an emergency. So um, the Arkansas Supreme Court basically had tried to say, well, Obergefell was just about the right to get married, but this is about the parent-child relationship. This is about biological record keeping. This is really a different issue. And the U.S. Supreme Court basically said, no, you know, when, when we said that gays and lesbians are entitled to marriage on the same terms and conditions as everybody else, those terms and conditions include things like how birth certificates are handled and and other things. So that was important. Um, As I said, it didn't get a lot of attention. It was what's called a per curiam decision. It's basically the Supreme Court thought it was so straightforward, they didn't have briefing or oral argument on it. They just acted on the petition for certiorari that was uh, submitted. Uh, Interestingly, uh, our new justice, Neil Gorsuch, who replaced Antonin Scalia, dissented in this case, uh, showing that he is not shy about uh, staking out a position on the court's right flank. But uh, but nonetheless, Pavan was was an important decision. And it also has some local interest. So there is a case currently pending at the Federal Court of Appeals in Chicago, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit, which covers Illinois, Indiana, and Wisconsin, and it has to do with Indiana's birth certificate laws. The the issues are quite similar. The plaintiffs in that case were lesbian couples who, once again, were legally married, used artificial insemination, gave birth, and the state of Indiana refused to put the name of the non-biological spouse, the, the spouse without the biological relationship to the child, on the birth certificate, even though the state of Indiana will do it for a male-female couple that, again, uses artificial insemination, and everybody knows that the husband has no biological tie to the child, but he gets put on the birth certificate. This decision hasn't come out yet from the Seventh Circuit. I mean, I, I think the Supreme Court's decision in June in this Arkansas case basically settles the Seventh Circuit case. I mean, there should 
I, I don't think there's enough difference between the laws and the situations in the two states to make a significant difference. So I would think that this would be an easy decision for the Seventh Circuit. They'll just basically say, well, the Supreme Court has pretty much told us how we have to approach this issue. Indiana loses, and Indiana has to change the way it does birth certificates. But for whatever reason, we don't have that decision yet. My personal speculation is that one of the judges on the panel, uh, Diane Sykes, who's quite conservative, may be taking her time and writing a dissent or something like that, and that can hold things up. But that's just purely my speculation, so we'll see what happens. Steve, um, thinking about the Supreme Court right now, um, what where are we at in terms of of the more liberal justices on the Supreme Court? Let's say that Ruth Bader Ginsburg retires or dies, mm-hmm. unfortunately. Um, what what type of route do you think that the Supreme Court will take on these issues uh, once it, the court does turn? More conservative. Yeah, so, so it's important to remember right now with Neil Gorsuch, we're, we're assuming he's quite conservative and kind of basically will vote the same way that Antonin Scalia voted, we're still in the same situation we've been in for quite a few years now with sort of four reliable conservatives, four reliable, I would call them moderates, not even necessarily moderate progressives, maybe. And then kind of one justice in the middle, Anthony Kennedy, who's the swing justice mm-hmm. in so many of these issues. So Gorsuch swapping out Scalia for Gorsuch doesn't change that. But you're right. If we lose Kennedy, that's significant on some issues where he has been friendly, say, to gay and lesbian Mm -hmm. issues, for example. And if we lose um, uh, Justice Ginsburg or Justice Breyer, um, that's potentially catastrophic. Now, it it depends on what you mean by, you know, these issues. I mean, um, the chief justice, you know, the the, uh, in the Pavan case that I just talked about, there were three dissenters and led by Gorsuch, but the chief justice didn't join that dissent. Right. So where where law is perceived as being basically settled, like I think it is now with marriage equality, I think there are going to be a few cases coming around that, you know, have to clarify certain things. But I don't think the court's going to revisit that issue and overturn Obergefell. Something like um, reproductive rights, that's a different question. Reproductive rights in some situations, some certain questions. Questions, uh, all going back in some way or another to Roe versus Wade, they're kind of hanging by a thread, by a five to four vote. So that could certainly change. Um, and, and you know, there w- there will be lots of other issues. The, the the Supreme Court actually decides a lot of very non-controversial or fairly low profile and kind of boring technical legal issues by lopsided majorities or unanimously, but it's this handful every year of five, six, seven, eight high profile, very divisive social issues, matters of constitutional law that are the 5-4 decisions. Obviously, it'll be a more conservative court if we lose one of those justices. And what does that mean for LGBT rights? Well, again, I think it depends on the question. I, I, I don't think that there's the appetite, at least, uh, say, with the chief justice, uh, to, to, like, revisit the issue of marriage equality. Yes, he dissented in Obergefell, but, you know, there's a sense that basically once a precedent is settled, it shouldn't be overturned without good reason. I don't think marriage equality is, I don't, I, whatever happens, I don't think marriage equality is going to change on the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. But there's another case, which we can talk about now or later, depending on your time, um, coming down the pike this fall about religious liberty. 
um, that's a little harder to predict. And the more conservative the court gets, the more space it's probably willing to carve out for religion. Uh, this is a court that's already kind of bends over backwards to uh, be very friendly and favorable toward religion and to treat religion as kind of a special category that deserves special solicitude. And not always, but sometimes that can come at the expense of LGBT rights, say when a business owner wants to invoke his or her religion to not serve a gay couple. For example, that's the case that's coming up this uh, this fall. Um, you know, probably in the coming years, in some form or other, we will get issues related to transgender persons mm-hmm. coming to the court, whether it's a challenge to the military ban or something else. Um, uh, a, a, a more conservative court will, you know, probably be make those cases more challenging. There may be questions coming down the road about whether federal non-discrimination law, what's called Title VII, the uh, law that prevents discrimination in employment, whether that covers sexual orientation or not. That is a lively open question in the lower courts right now. Sexual orientation isn't mentioned in the text of the law. What's mentioned are race, religion, national origin and sex, among other categories. Um, We've had a number of courts, again, including the Seventh Circuit, the Court of Appeals uh, that sits over Indiana, rule that basically the sexual orientation is encompassed within sex, that when the law outlaws discrimination on the basis of sex, that doesn't just mean discrimination against women or discrimination by women against men. It also encompasses discrimination that is premised on gender stereotypes, stereotypes about the proper way a man or a woman should act or behave, and that basically discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation is just another, it's the application of another gender stereotype. Well, men shouldn't date men, they should date women. That's a gender stereotype. And so that's been an interesting development in the law. The Trump administration is fighting against that by filing briefs in some of the lower federal courts, taking another position. So that issue will probably get to the Supreme Court within the next couple of years as well. Yeah, and so I was going to ask, so that happened about a month ago, I think, that it was at the Justice Department, what they said. So what did they say again? Well, so um, again, the question is, uh, basically what it boils down to is when Congress passed this law back in 1964, it's called Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, that, uh, that outlaws discrimination on the basis of sex. The conservative argument is that, well, Congress in 1964 never imagined that that law would apply to sexual orientation. Back then, homosexuals were in the closet and underground and despised and misunderstood. So how is it that courts can go about now, today, essentially rewriting the statute? And the more progressive view or a different view of statutory interpretation is that courts need to update the meaning of laws. And today, we understand the phenomenon of sexual orientation differently than we did than Congress did back in 1964 and and also building on some intervening Supreme Court decisions over the years that have interpreted Title VII. Um, some courts, again, including ours here, the Seventh Circuit, feel comfortable saying sex includes sexual orientation. That means if you are discriminated against because you're gay or you're lesbian or you're straight, for that matter, um, 
uh, you can bring suit under this federal non-discrimination law. Basically, what the Trump administration has done is where this issue is being litigated in a different federal circuit, um, the Trump administration has filed what's called a friend of the court brief, an amicus curiae brief, basically saying it is the view of the federal government that, no, this is wrong, that sex doesn't include sexual orientation, that's inconsistent. If Congress wants to change the law and update it, that should be up to Congress. It shouldn't be the role of the courts to do it. So that's basically the the, the argument that the Trump Justice Department is making in, I forget if it's the 10th or the 11th Circuit, one of the other federal circuits. Uh, and we'll see what that federal circuit does. Um, but if there is disagreement arises among the lower federal courts, that's kind of the surest path to eventually having the Supreme Court take up this question. Sure. And thank you so much, Steve. We're going to come right mm -hmm. back to this, but it's time for our first music break of the evening. Los Angeles singer-songwriter John Errol has nearly finished his solo album, Inferno, when an ex-boyfriend changed the trajectory of his music. He was unfaithful and blamed me, Errol says, but for the first time in a while, I couldn't ignore myself any longer. I needed to say something to articulate my confusion in real time. So he put away all of the guitars and synthesizers used on Inferno for an instrument that gave him clarity, the piano he learned to play on. What resulted as Errol's first true single as a solo artist, What You're Looking For, which intimately reflects on his damaging relationship and, in doing so, discovers self-love and a time of insecurity. Although Errol's single is rooted in queer romance, the message is certainly universal. I think everyone can relate to this experience of being blindsided, or someone projecting insecurities onto a relationship, or someone just looking for meaning in another person, he says. To me, what you're looking for is a mumbled kiss-off, an anthem of self-love and recognition to cry to on the dance floor. With what you're looking for, here is John Errol. And 
Joining us once again in the studio is Associate uh, Law Professor at the Maurer School of Law, Steve Sanders. Steve, uh, we're so happy to have you once again. Uh, your conversation, I think, really uh, stands out, and, and you can see it in your teaching awards and that sort of thing, because you do such a great job at explaining these issues. Thank you. And um, it, it is really amazing what what uh, you bring to light. Um, you had mentioned Alabama a few moments mm -hmm. ago and, and we talked about uh, how, how court cases have went through that, uh, that state and they used to have a Supreme Court justice and he was the, uh, the, the Chief Justice of mm -hmm. the Alabama Supreme Court, Roy Moore, right. who is now running for U.S. Senate uh, for Alabama. And uh, he has some pretty radical views on how this all, sh all should go down. Uh, he has stated that he wants the U.S. government or the, 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 the Congress to uh, revisit the issue of marriage equality mm -hmm. and do something about it. What are his routes, possible routes that he could even take to overturn? So, so the thing you have to understand about Roy Moore, so Roy Moore was the chief justice, mm -hmm. as you said, of Alabama. He was disgraced. At one point, he was removed from office by a judicial ethics panel twice. I, that's right, twice. Um, but uh, uh, the first time was over his refusal to um, remove a Ten Commandments monument. And I guess the second time was because of compliance with federal court orders 
related to same-sex marriage, Correct. right? So, mm-hmm. so the thing about Roy Moore, so in, in a modern-day Republican Party that's pretty conservative and pretty um, uh, 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 friendly with the religious right, e- even in that milieu, Roy Moore is an extremist. I mean, Roy Moore is a Christian supremacist. Roy Moore is a theocrat, and, and it's not hyperbole to call him that. The other difficult thing about Roy Moore is he is one of these people who subscribes to a fringe theory that basically states have the right to ignore decisions of the U.S. Supreme Court if they disagree with them. They can nullify decisions. So Roy Moore is one of these people who sort of believes that it is it is illegitimate when the Supreme Court makes a decision like, say, legalizing mm-hmm. same-sex marriage that a state disagrees with. That basically the state has the right to say, no, we can read the Constitution for ourselves and we don't see that there. So we don't have to obey with uh, obey that. Um, it's the same kind of thing that you had in some southern states after Brown versus Board of Education, the school integration case in the 50s. As I said, it's a, it's a fringe theory of, of it's not one that's widely accepted or widely practiced. Basically, when the Supreme Court says something, it's generally understood that's binding. So and Roy Moore has no path in the Senate or in Congress to do anything that Obergefell is a, is a, is a decision by the Supreme Court interpreting the Constitution. Congress can pass laws, but the Constitution is supreme over anything that Congress might pass. I suppose Congress could pass laws that would say such something like, you know, same-sex couples, uh, the the federal government doesn't have to give the same benefits to same-sex married couples that they give to opposite-sex married couples. That would implicate questions like I was talking about earlier with that Arkansas case. What did Obergefell really mean? Did it mean just the right to get married, or did it mean the right to be treated equally more broadly? And I think that would get struck down. So I, you know, I think Roy Moore will be able to um, be very noisy and get a lot of headlines and excite the people who uh, believe the way he does, the sort of hardcore Christian right. But I have to imagine that even in this Congress, he will end up being just a sort of backbench fringe freak show. A quick follow-up to that. How how likely do you see um, our our government becoming a theocracy? What What is in place to prevent that from happening? Well, we we still have a Supreme Court that prevents that from happening. You know, I I actually, I don't know if you've got something in specific in mind. I don't see a lot of that right now coming out of Washington. I mean, particularly, you know, Donald Trump is clearly not a religious person. He occasionally throws bones to the religious right because he needs their support, even though anybody with a brain could see he doesn't care about religion. He's not practicing. He doesn't know anything about Christianity. Um, But, you know, he'll he'll cynically sort of throw a bone to, to the people in that group who voted for him. But, you know, the Republican Senate today is, you know, relatively, it's conservative, but, um, you know, it's relatively sensible. It's kind of, it's trying in some ways to keep Trump in check. The House is pretty conservative. I'm just having a hard time thinking right now of any specific issues, um, you know, that you could say we're in danger of becoming a theocracy. I think think the Trump administration is endangering our values in lots of different ways. I'm just not sure imposing theocracy is at the top of the list. I have three words. Okay. President Mike Pence. Um, you know, again, we know that Mike Pence is a very conservative Christian and certainly um, did things to push those views 
um, when he was governor of Indiana and got some blowback and got some pushback, particularly from the business mm-hmm. community and the sort of mainstream of the um, of the Republican Party. If Mike Pence were to become president, um, you know, I, I actually think Pence is a smart enough politician that he'd be careful that anything if he were going to be moving in that direction, it would be in all sorts of ways that fly under the radar screen. Things having to do with federal regulations or decisions that the federal government makes that can make life easier or more difficult for religious people or for non-religious believers. But again, anything significant has to go through Congress, um, you know, if we're going to change laws in particular ways. So sure, the administration can take positions in the Supreme Court, um, like, you know, we again, we have the case coming down the pike this fall about religious liberty and wedding cake bakers. So sure, Mike Pence could um, uh, bring to bear the resources of the presidency and the federal government in ways that um, I might not approve of or you might not approve of. Um, that, But I think those changes would still be relatively incremental, not like overnight we're going to become a theocracy. I, I, I just think Pence is politically smart enough that he's not going to be having nationally televised prayer sessions every week. Well, we, we see uh, these pictures coming out of the White House with all of the faith leaders with their hands on the president and praying and mm-hmm. uh, having a national day of prayer for for Hurricane Harvey, you know. Well, it, we've had that, you know, every president, including Obama, has spoken to national day. They all feel they have to genuflect mm-hmm. to a particular, you know, religious constituency or a particular kind of, you know, watered down, you know, idea of religiosity that Americans have. I mean, look, religion has played a role in this country and is important in many people's lives. We shouldn't denigrate that. We shouldn't deny it. Every president has felt like they have to go to the National Day of Prayer and, and, and as I said, sort of play that role. Um, you know, again, whether that's in danger, you know, we, we may find that offensive or I may find it like no intelligent religious person could believe that Trump is actually religious. <laughs> but um, but again, I, I find that that's more to me an issue with Trump and people's gullibility sure. rather than some fear that um, I'm going to be forced to practice some religion that I don't want to practice. Yeah. We just have a couple of minutes here before we go to our next break, but I do want to start talking, um, however so briefly it might be, about gay wedding cakes. Mm -hmm. Who knew a topic such as wedding cakes could be so controversial? Yeah. Yeah. Well, wedding cakes, florists, photographers, there have been court cases about these for a number of years now. So so this fall, the Supreme Court uh, will hear arguments in a case out of Colorado that basically involves a wedding cake baker. The, his business is called Masterpiece Cake Shop, uh, who uh, says he is a devout Christian and conducts his business in according to Christian principles, and he refused to bake a wedding cake for the wedding of a same-sex couple. Now, he claims that he told them, I will sell you anything else you want in the shop. I will bake something else for you. I just can't bake a wedding cake for a same-sex wedding. It goes against my religious principles. State of Colorado has a non-discrimination law that protects against discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation. So after you know various legal proceedings at the state level, this uh, baker was found to be um, in violation of that state law. Now, the Supreme Court will take up the question of basically should a 
person in his position, should a person's religious liberty, uh, their their sincere religious beliefs, give them an exemption from having to comply with, say, a non-discrimination law, with laws that everybody else has to comply with, um, because religion is, again, a sort of special category, that it would be um, uh, uh, wrong for the government to compel somebody to do something that violates their religious faith or their religious principles. Um, You know, depending on how much time we have, we can talk more about this. I think this is a tough question. I think it's not quite as obvious as it may sound at first. I mean, I assume we would want to preserve the right of a gay baker to not have to bake a cake for um, uh, an anti-gay group or for an African-American baker to not have to bake a cake for a white supremacist group. Well, if they do that, does that mean the black baker is discriminating on the basis of race, that he hates white people? No, probably not. So again, I think there's a real nuance here. There's a the, the question is with this baker, did he refuse to bake the cake because he doesn't like gay people or just because same-sex marriage specifically is something his religious faith won't allow him to become entangled with. If he's sincere in saying, look, I would serve them. I'll sell them anything else they want in the shop. I'm not objecting to them as customers. I'm objecting to the message on the cake. I think that makes that a, this a difficult case. It is the top of the hour, and we're going to turn it over to Jesse, and we will return with Professor Sanders in just a few moments. This is listener-supported WFHB, Bloomington, Bedford, Ellettsville, and Nashville. Community radio for South Central Indiana and online at wfhb.org. Now it's time for the weather. Right now, it's 69 degrees Fahrenheit in Bloomington. Tonight, the the low will get down to 53 degrees. Tomorrow on Friday, the high will be 76, and it will be nice and sunny. And tomorrow night, the low will also be 53 degrees. Now it's time for our next music break here on Blooming Out. New York-based Nakaya, wow, that one was tough, is back with a new single about the feeling of intense fear, anxiety, and excitement of the prospect of something new in in an honest gentle manner. I had decided I was going to make a commitment to be with someone, and at the time it had already been a bit tumultuous at the get-go. I had this apprehension about what I was getting into. Is this something I want to be all in about, or should I keep myself safer? I don't know if that's the word. Should I tiptoe into it, or should I dive headfirst? With Jump, this is Nakaya. Oh, I I was just... Set the glass down, made of plastic, like your nose now, fantastic, you look so nice, can I kiss you, smell like secret, teen spirit, you think of sex when I spin in this dress when I press down the sides of my skin, but I
Support for WFHB and Blooming Out comes from The Back Door, downtown Bloomington's queerest bar, dance club, and venue. From live shows and DJs to drag shows and karaoke, there's something for everyone every day of the week. The Back Door is located at 207 South College Avenue in the alley behind Atlas Bar. More information can be found on Facebook or online at bckdoor.com. Blooming Out is also supported by the Coryland Men's Chorus, Bloomington's premier chorus for gay, bi, and trans men and their allies. You can find more information at coryland.org. Now back to Blooming Out here on WFHB. And this is Blooming Out here on WFHB. We're here in the studio with Steve Sanders, and we just left off talking about Steve, what were we talking about again? Uh, this is the uh, Masterpiece Cake Shop case. Yes, and so, Ryan, where did we leave off with that? So, Steve, you were talking about uh, um, how this is winding up uh, through the courts and winding its way through the courts. Um, I did have a yes-no question to it, mm-hmm. and, and I kind of and I want you to dive into a little bit more mm-hmm. detail as we were talking about here during the music break. Right. Um, if we were to, to go back and, and use a religious test uh, back in the 60s, maybe maybe even earlier than that, I, I don't know when the laws were changed. It doesn't come to my mind. You would know more than I do on that. Um, but back when uh, people used religion to discriminate against black people. Yeah, that, was very, that was very prominent. I mean, in 19, uh, the mid-1960s, famous case Loving versus Virginia, where the mm-hmm. Supreme Court out, outlawed uh, laws forbidding interracial marriage um, that involved a couple who'd been sentenced to um, a, a, a criminal punishment by a judge in Virginia who said, you know, well, we wouldn't have this kind of problem of, of the races mixing, but for interference in God's plan. And so, sure, religion has had been used um, very, uh, you know, famous 
um, biblical theologians and radio preachers tried to explain why segregation was part of God's plan. Um, uh, Christian conservatives want you to forget that today, that there was that history there, and thankfully maybe most of it has gone away. Um, but uh, but, but I, th- I think what you were sort of getting at is if you accept this idea that you could get a pass from a gay rights law based on your religious liberty, does that mean you could get a pass from a uh, a, a racial non-discrimination law based on your religious liberty. And sure, if we're going to be consistent, the answer is yes. Logically, if you accept that position, it would open the door for somebody to make that argument. Um, and, and so that possibility maybe will give some pause to the, to the Supreme Court. As I said, I, I think these are difficult issues. Um, you know, what was the motivation of the baker for discriminating? Um, the uh, you know the the other difficulty with these is um, yes we want to leave open um, space for people to practice their religions without government interference. I mean we have a free exercise clause that's an important part of the Constitution that stands equally with the non-establishment of religion clause. But um, the, the thing I think are t- is tough about these cases, uh, you know, is how do we know whether the baker is sincere or not? You know, we can say, okay, there should be some special accommodation for religion that's part of our legal heritage. If it's his sincere religious belief, maybe we could have a an honest discussion about whether that should give him a pass from having to comply with a non-discrimination law. But, you know, what about the people, and we know there will be people like this, who just have a kind of political or cultural distaste for gay people, and they don't want to serve them either, and they, you know, they say it's about religion, or they, they, they will try to claim the protection of this special religious accommodation just because it's convenient for them, whether it's truly motivated by religion or not. So this is just a, it's an interesting thicket of issues, but this is kind of where things have gone. I mean, gay marriage is settled uh, as an issue, except for some skirmishes again about benefits and birth certificates and so forth. But this tension between, you know, just about half the states still don't have non-discrimination laws. You can get married in a state and then fired from your job the next day in many states because you're gay and you have no legal recourse. There is no federal law that prevents that kind of thing. So I think gay rights organizations are moving back now toward non-discrimination, including members of the transgender community, and and the pushback on the basis of religious liberty against those anti-discrimination principles. That is the, 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 the centerpiece of the action, for lack of a better word, right now when you're talking about LGBT rights. Yeah. And speaking about trans issues, we would be remiss if we didn't mention these issues that have been coming up lately uh, through the Trump administration. I'm going to read this news story really quick, and then we'll we'll break it down and and figure this out. So this is from NBC. Uh, President Donald Trump released a presidential memorandum giving new guidance to his previously tweeted ban on transgender individuals serving in the U.S. military. Trump has advanced his plan despite opposition from LGBTQ advocates, lawmakers, including many in his own party, and even military leaders themselves. The majority of Americans, according to a recent poll, also oppose a ban on transgender service members. According to the memo, which was addressed to the Secretaries of Defense and Homeland Security, these new guidelines will prevent the enlistment of new transgender service members and will stop funding for gender reassignment treatment for currently serving trans people. 
The memo also states that Defense Secretary James Mattis has until February 21st to determine how to address transgender individuals currently serving in the United States military. The Pentagon uh, said it should be noted already conducted a study of the consequences of allowing transgender troops to serve openly as part of the policy review that began in 2015 by former Defense Secretary Ashton Carter. A commissioned report by the RAND Corporation found that transgender members of the armed forces would not compromise military readiness, ability to deploy, or require a significant increase in health care costs. It was after considering the results of this study that Carter announced the transgender service members can no longer be discharged or otherwise separated from the military just for being transgender, and that the military would provide transition-related health care coverage. LGBTQ advocates are already mounting a legal challenge to President Trump's transgender military ban. GLBTQ legal advocates and defenders, GLAD, and the National Center for Lesbian Rights have filed suit against the Trump administration on behalf of five transgender members of the armed forces. The American Civil Liberties Union of Maryland on Monday filed a federal lawsuit in Baltimore on behalf of six transgender individuals currently serving in the Army, Navy, Air Force, National Guard, and Naval Reserve. Because the memo is ambiguous about the power, uh, sec- the power sec- Secretary Mattis has to interpret and execute the directives in the memo, OutServe SLDN, an LGBTQ military advocacy organization, has also sent a letter to Mattis's office asking for his interpretation of Trump's memo <coughs> and clarification on what the military memo means for the military as a whole. What's going on here, Steve? So a little background. Um, Up until very recently, um, the military didn't allow transgendered individuals into service. There there was effectively a ban. I'm not sure it was ever actually in writing, but but there was a ban. Um, The Obama administration began to open that up. Secretary of Defense Ash Carter made the decision that, um, <clears throat> pardon me, currently serving transgender individuals could serve, could mm-hmm. serve openly. That was a policy change. And he initiated a study, <clears throat> pardon me, I'm sorry, initiated a study of um, uh, 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 opening up military recruitment to new inductees who were transgender. What happened is um, when the Trump administration came in, the the new Secretary of Defense put a hold on that study and pushed it out for another six months. And then Trump, out of nowhere, tweets a couple of a month or so ago, um, please be on notice that no transgender persons will be able to enter or serve in the military. Mm -hmm. The story behind this seems to be that this was another bone to the social conservatives. The other thing you have to understand is that the the issue of gender identity and whether it exists or not and transgender people generally has become the new obsession of the organized religious right. Um, they've largely lost the battle on gay rights and they have moved on now to, to denying the very idea of the phenomenon of variation in gender identity. They're upset at the idea that it might cost money to the military to have to give medical treatment to transgender individuals. The reality 
ideas that whatever that was going to cost, the military spends more than that now on Viagra right. than it would spend on that kind of medical treatment. So the the story here seems to be that this was just Trump in another sort of you know ill-considered, off-the-cuff decision, sort of deciding eh, he needs to throw a bone to this particular constituency, so he's issuing these orders. It's been interesting and gratifying to see the extent to which the military leadership has not made much of a secret of the fact it's unhappy about this, Mm -hmm. and it really doesn't approve of the idea. There were lots of military leaders and generals who talked about, you know, respecting all those who serve. So um, we'll see what happens. Um, It it does seem as though the ban on new inductees will um, stay in place, but Mattis has been given time to study uh, basically the situation of those who are currently serving, how the military should handle that. I think I've got that correct. Um, so, you know, this policy is moving forward that will disadvantage transgender people, or at least will essentially nullify most or all of the progress that was made under the Obama administration, I think is the right way to think about this. And as you say, the policy is being sued over um, because, you know, I I think the main argument will be there's been no pretense of military necessity or a good, solid reason based on national security. The courts are generally very unwilling to second-guess genuine, serious, well-considered national security and military decisions. The problem is this decision seems to have been none of those. This decision looks like what is legally called animus. This just looks like something that was done because transgender people are a kind of misunderstood, disliked minority, and the government thinks it can get away with it. And the court has said many times in many contexts that just a governmental desire to harm a politically unpopular group violates the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. That, just standing alone, can't be a good reason for treating a group disadvantageously. So we'll see what happens. But I suspect, again, this litigation will basically revolve around the question of, was there some serious reason, good faith, military necessity reason for this that's based on data and study and facts? Or was this just an instance of animus against a group uh, that's being kind of scapegoated for other political ends? As time normally does with you, Steve, we're, we're getting close to the end of uh, our time with you, unfortunately. But there is one last thing that I do want to make sure we hit on uh, regarding trans issues, and that's the transgender bathroom bills that mm-hmm. just keep coming and coming and coming no matter where you look, no matter where you are. What, first off, why do they keep coming out with these bills? What, what do you believe? that It doesn't necessarily have to be the legal mm-hmm. basis behind yeah. it, but uh, why do they keep doing this, and what is the legality behind their argument? Mm-hmm. Well, as you said, they, they, they keep coming, but so far as I know, they're, they're not going anywhere. You know, it passed in North Carolina and then sort of got repealed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yes, they keep popping up, but like other kind of gay rights backlash bills in the wake of, say, the Obergefell decision, Pastor Protection Acts and so forth, they, they don't go anywhere. They get introduced for the reason that I spoke about a minute ago, for a for the, for the organized 
religious right, the organized Christian right generally, which is still an important component of the Republican constituency and which particularly in southern and midwestern states uh, holds a lot of sway among the sort of Tea Party crowd, the people who are kind of the majority of members of these state legislatures of some of these states. Um, Transgender issues and gender identity is their new obsession. Uh, So it's backlash against perceived advances and increasing social acceptance of transgendered individuals. This is just politics. These bills are introduced by Tea Party Republicans because they believe it themselves. They don't like transgender people or they think they have to do this to keep their constituents happy. Um, We will see there hasn't been really any definitive litigation at a high enough level of the federal courts to know whether these laws would stand. I mean, everybody knows, even in North Carolina, the police said, well, we can't enforce this. I mean, these bills are not, these bills do not serve any legitimate need. And that's demonstrated by the fact that they're not enforced. They're unenforceable. You can't post a police officer in every bathroom. These are symbolic. These are laws intended to send an expressive message on the part of the government that transgender people are somehow unfit or dangerous or inherently potentially criminal. So I I think you know, again, once again, the word animus, because these laws seem to be based on no serious documented um, public safety or public health need. They appear to just be the product of sort of fear and stereotypes. Mm-hmm. Um, I think if, if they are significantly challenged, um, they probably wouldn't survive. I'm going to take a hit at pollsters here for a minute. You know, we know how polls turned out with the election, so mm-hmm. they're not necessarily all fact. But these politicians keep coming out with these bills, even though polls show that the American public doesn't want them. Mm-hmm. You know, why are you trying to uh, appease 40 per, four, 30 to 40 percent mm-hmm. of the population um, by by doing this? What What is the reason there? Yeah, you want to keep your base, but why don't you want to keep the, that other 60 percent of your population? Uh, of your constituency happy? Well, I think you have to understand that, you know, uh, most of these politicians represent districts. Um, So, you know, it's not their job to say, well, only 30 or 40 percent of the country supports this. You know, they're in some district where like 70 percent of their Mm -hmm. constituents support it. That's all they care about because that's the constituency they have to keep happy to be reelected. And the same thing happens on the left. I mean, in Bloomington, you know, the city council and the county council you know, are very progressive because Bloomington's a progressive place and they don't care. Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the, you know, so progressive politicians with safe progressive districts are going to push those kinds of policies and conservatives with safe conservative districts are going to push those kinds of policies. I mean, you can't stop people from introducing bills. But it, as I said, to me, it's been telling that these bills haven't gone anywhere. Thank you, as usual, Steve, for joining sure. us today. Professor... Uh, Associate Professor of the Maurer School of Law, Steve Sanders, uh, tonight. And uh, we, again, I say this each and every time you're on the show, we have to get you more often than than once every <laughs> every half the year. So Always happy to. Yep. Thank you for joining us, Steve. Okay. And it is now time for our third and final music break of the evening. Bomb's punchy new track, Hot Water, melds a mix of old and new influences to express the double-edged excitement and awkwardness of beginning to explore your sexuality as an inexperienced queer individual. I hadn't been with women, 
So when I was talking to these girls, I felt like I was putting up a front that I couldn't back up. And that's where the inspiration for the song really came out of. The feeling that you're walking around like you're this hot person and everyone thinks you're so experienced, but secretly, you feel like a little girl and you don't know what to do. With her latest single, Hot Water, here is Bomb.
you just listened to Bomb with Hot Water. And now to finish out our sh- tonight's show, it's time for your weekly LGBTQ plus area event calendar. The Indiana Stonewall Democrats work daily with politicians in the Indiana Democratic Party, making certain the needs of the LGBTQ plus community and our allies are heard. Network with the ISD board and other members and consider becoming a member. Their next meet and greet will be on Tuesday, September the 26th from 5.30 to 8.30 p.m. at Rebar Indy. That's at 20 North Delaware in Indianapolis. More information can be found on Facebook. The Interpride World Conference is coming to Indianapolis this October. The annual general meeting and world conference acts as a source of education and a stepping stone to elevating community interaction for Pride events worldwide, as well as a great networking opportunity and platform for communication among Pride organizations. Indianapolis will welcome a diverse audience from all over the world October 5th through 8th, To learn more about this event or to purchase tickets, visit www.indiepride.org slash interpride. For more information about Interpride, visit www.interpride.org. Join the Damien Center on Saturday, November the 4th from 5 p.m. to 12 a.m. for their annual Grand Masquerade Venetian Ball. Celebrate the Damien Center's 30th anniversary and push extravagance to the limit. The ball will be at the Indianapolis Marriott downtown. More information can be found on Facebook, and tickets can be purchased at damien.thankyou4caring.org. An IU staff member has formed a meetup group open to Bloomington area LGBTQ plus adults of all ages. If you're in town and would like to join like-minded folks for fun social activities, learn more by visiting www.meetup.com slash Bloomington LGBTQ social meetup. And finally, HIV testing will be provided by Positive Link on the first and third Thursday of each month at the LGBTQ plus culture center. This free Confidential 20-minute testing can be scheduled by contacting the LGBTQ Plus Culture Center. If you would like to add your, ca- add your event to our event calendar, email us at bloomingout at wfhb.org. That is all the time we have for this evening. We would like to thank you for tuning in tonight. If you are interested in volunteering here at WFHB or for our show, contact volunteer at wfhb.org. You can also call us at 812-323-1200. Tweet us at Blooming Out WFHB, visit our Blooming Out Facebook page, or find us on Instagram. The executive producer of Blooming Out is Wes Martin. The producer is Ryan Shaddy. The associate producer and music director is Grace Thumser. The news director is Olivia Davidson. Our board engineer is Jesse Grubb. Our social media coordinators are Josephine Douglas and Brett Roberts. Finally, our theme music is an original composition produced for Blooming Out by Aaron Gage. For Blooming Out and Colin Schasperger, I'm Ryan Shaddy. Please tune in again next Thursday at 5.30 p.m. and visit us online at bloomingout.com. Blooming Out, Indiana's only LGBTQ plus radio program, airs every Thursday evening here on WFHB at 5.30 p.m. You can also stream us 24 hours a day, seven days a week on WFHB.org or BloomingOut.com. Thank you for listening. Please tune in again next week to Blooming Out. Blooming Out.